Welcome back to the second half of this third season of Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist scholar by training, curious observer of poetry in general. I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Anthony Domestico to Old Books with Grace today to chat about modernist poetry, especially my favorite 20th century poet, T.S. Eliot. Anthony Domestico is chair of the literature department at Purchase College SUNY and the books columnist for Commonweal. His reviews and essays have appeared in The Atlantic, The Baffler, Book Post, The Boston Globe, Lit Hub, The San Francisco Chronicle, and many other places. His book, Poetry and Theology in the Modernist Period, is available from Johns Hopkins. Welcome, Dr. Domestico. Um, So I ask everyone who comes on the show two questions, sort of get to know you. The first, what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago and why? That's a really good question. Um, I guess I'd probably say... Henry James's The Portrait of a Lady. Okay. Uh, I'm a, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge James fan. And all, really all of James from, from early to late. I, I particularly love the, the late novels, The Golden Bull, Wings of the Dove. But Portrait of a Lady, to me, is such a perfect mixture of the formal and in kind of technical brilliance that I associate mm-hmm. with late Henry James, but it's also just a great plot. And Isabel Archer is such an amazing character. And yeah, you know, if I could spend my time reading one novel for the rest of my life, it would probably be that. Oh, that's a really interesting answer. Um, I always, so I enjoyed Henry James. I haven't read him for a while, but mm-hmm. I always had, I felt like I was always skimming on the surface mm-hmm. of his mm-hmm. meaning while I was reading mm-hmm. him, which was a frustrating experience for me Yeah, <laughs> um, because he's so, um, I, I don't know. He, he's such an interesting stylist in his yeah. Re- yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I suspect, you know, we're we're probably going to end up talking a, a bit about difficulty in modernism, right? And, and James sure. is, you know, importantly <laughs> and and complicatedly difficult as a prose stylist. Yes. Again, I think that The Portrait of a Lady, to me, is difficult in the way that I like literature to be difficult, but it's mm. also purely pleasurable in the mm. way that I like literature to be purely pleasurable <laughs> as well. Like The Golden Bowl, as much as I love it, The Ambassadors, as much as I love it. You're right. You there. There's a kind of seriousness and attention that is required to reading that. That, yes. that is its own kind of pleasure, but is is also its own kind of work. Right. Yes. Um, yes. And the portrait of a lady is just at the plot level, at the character level, at the sentence level, so beautiful. Yes. Um, yeah. So, no, it's actually. Yeah, I was no actually exactly thinking of ambassadors when you. That was what I was thinking <laughs> yeah. of when I was talking about my yeah. experience reading Henry James. Um, yeah, you can't really read the ambassadors on a on your weekday commute. You can no. kind of read the portrait of a lady on your weekday commute. I mean, yes, it's, it's, I think that's why that's why I love it so much. Yeah, um, I think it's in the ambassadors. There's this passage that he writes about. Um, it's talking about a social interaction between characters. And I, I can't remember who it is. This was a long time ago, but I think yeah. about this passage all the time where it's the fish passing each other in mm-hmm. the ocean. Do you mm-hmm. know what passage mm-hmm. I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Mm-hmm. This social interaction. And I just sometimes think of that in relation to like awkward um, <laughs> interactions at parties where you're like, sure. we just missed each other. We're the fish in the ocean yeah. close and yet just gazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, J- James, especially late James, is so, again, wonderfully complicated at the syntactical level, but he's also so astute about how much of existence is, you know, me thinking about you, thinking about what you're thinking about yes. what I'm thinking, right? And, That's right. <laughs> yeah, and, and so and so that means that the sentences are often quite impossible to parse or track. Yes, but well, it's exactly also- like what you just said, me thinking about you, thinking about you reacting to yeah. me, <laughs> like it's, you're like, what's the subject again? Oh yeah, yeah. But but in 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 so it is it is 
quite difficult to to track, but it also seems to me exactly how I experience the world, right? When I'm at a party, I am thinking about what other people are thinking about what I'm thinking, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So Why well, I think a, about that passage. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So the number two question, get to know you. Which literary character do you most identify with and why? So this is also a really good and difficult question. And I I guess probably just because I'm thinking about Henry James in The Portrait of a Lady, I'm going to choose a character from a very recent novel, um, the the narrator of Elif Batuman's uh, first two novels, The Idiot and um, either or the main character, the narrator is a woman, a young woman named Selene. And she is an undergrad. Um, she's the first in the first book, The Idiot. She's a freshman. The second book, she's a sophomore. Um, and uh, she's an incredibly bookish person. I'm a bookish person as well. She kind of lives through books. I oftentimes think of myself as living through books. And in either or, the, the reason I said thinking about James made me think of Selene, there's a, a lovely kind of mini essay at the end of either or, which is a novel that came out last year in which Selene is thinking about her own life and her own future. And she's thinking about her own life and her future by thinking about Isabel Archer from The Portrait of a Lady. And one of the things that Selene in that novel does is she looks at, she thinks about literature as a model for living, mm. right? Um, a model for understanding the narrative of one's life, a model for understanding what a, not just a literary style, but a style of character might be. Hmm. And oftentimes I deeply identify with that, 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 that first of all, that um, kind of obsessive omnivorous reading habit, but also the way in which reading is not just for Selene. It's not just for me something I do, it's really, it's, it's really who I am. Um, mm. uh, and, and so, so I, I identify, her, I identify with her identifying with literature, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I have to admit, I've not read the book. I am woefully uh, underread in contemporary fiction, but um, that's a so really the, yeah, fascinating way of explaining. Yeah, they're, they're great. And less that make it sound overly serious the idiot is one of the funniest novels i've ever read mm. it's a it's a it's a terrific account of the awkwardness of being a freshman um, in college and <laughs> trying to figure out again what kind of a person you are what kind of a person you want to be she has a batuman has a very specific and idiosyncratic deadpan style of humor and so it's it's a rich novel but it's also just a really really great comic novel I'll add it to my list. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah, definitely do. Okay, so you um, teach and write on modernist poetry. Yeah. And um, for those listeners of the podcast who've heard this name wafting around in the air, but they aren't exactly sure what it means, yeah. what is modernist poetry? So how is it defined? What era was it written in? What characterizes yeah. modernism compared to, say, Victorian or postmodern poetry, bracketing either side, all that kind of yeah. stuff? Yeah, so I think that the 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 best way maybe to, to think about what modern or modernist poetry means is actually to look at a great short poem by Wallace Stevens called of modern poetry. Mm. And it's, it's a, it's a short enough poem that your, your listeners can, you know, they can track it down online and, and read it. It's only, I think maybe about 30 lines and of modern poetry as the, the title indicates it's partly a definitional poetry. Stevens is trying to define what he means by modern poetry. He is one of the great modernist poets himself. And there are three, lines from that poem that I think help delineate what modern or modernist poetry is. Um, so from that poem, uh, first of all, Stephen says, modern poetry must construct a new stage, right? Mm. And by that, he means that the old ways of writing poetry, traditional prosody, traditional rhyme scheme, traditional meter, traditional imagery – no longer seem sufficient to the modernist poet. So they really think, and, and there's a famous quote from Ezra Pound who said that the modernist poets need to make it new, right? The modernist poets believe they need to make their forms and structures and styles and tones new. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one feature of modernist poetry, uh, a kind of formal inventiveness. Um, another 
line from that poem, Stephen says that modern poetry, and I'm going to be garbling this quote a little bit, I think, but modern poetry um, must speak in the language of the time, right? Mm -hmm. So modernist poetry, one non-Stephen's way of defining modernist poetry would be to say it's, you know, poetry written between, say, 1890 and 1945, right? That would Mm -hmm. be a chronological definition. But for in Stephen saying that modern poetry must speak the language of the time, he means that it must use the idioms and experiences of modern experience, right? Mm-hmm. So if you read someone like T.S. Eliot, you're going to read a poet grappling with urban experience. What does it mean to be a mind, to be a body, to mean a, to be a soul moving through the city? Um, in that poem of modern poetry, Stevens talks about how modern poetry must speak of war, right? So it must grapple with the kind of historical conditions in which it's being written. So the first definition, formal inventiveness, the second definition that it has to use the the language and experiences of, let's say, the early 20th century. And then the final, and in many ways, to me, most interesting feature of modernist poetry that we can get from Stevens's poem is he describes the modern poet as uh, a metaphysician in the dark. Hmm. Right? And I love that phrase because it indicates two things. First of all, it indicates that modernist poetry has a deep metaphysical or ontological bent, right? That it's interested with areas of ultimate concern. What is mm-hmm. the nature of existence? What is reality? What is the relationship between imminence and transcendence? But he says it's a metaphysician in the dark. And by that, he means that Modernist poets like himself, like Ezra Pound, like T.S. Eliot, although Eliot's an interesting and in, in a little bit different case. Um, modernist poets think about metaphysics and are not fully comfortable simply using traditional metaphysics to think mm-hmm. metaphysically, right? That there's yeah. a kind of grappling after metaphysics. There's a kind of just as that the the first right the the modern poet must construct a new stage the 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 old ways of doing poetry seem no longer sufficient well the old ways of understanding metaphysics seem no longer sufficient for many of the modernist poetry uh, many of the modernist poets so chronologically we could just say modernist poetry right is roughly speaking experimental poetry written between let's say 1890 and 1945 um but i think stevens gives us a really good way of thinking about three of its very particular features that it's formally daring and and inventive that it speaks of into modernity and that it's interested in trying to cobble together a metaphysical vision of the world when the traditional metaphysical vision of the world doesn't seem to to obtain any longer. Mm, I really, I had not heard that description of the, the metaphysician in the dark. That is fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. That's really useful. Um, so what got you into modernism and modernist poetry in the first place? What made you yeah. want to pursue it? Yeah. So it was a class as an as an undergrad. I took a course, actually not in poetry, in modernist prose, um, that began, I think it began with Proust, and then we read Wolf, and then we read Joyce. But it was really a, a course on modernist fiction, and in particular, its attempt to render consciousness in Mm. literary form. So that was one course I took on modernist fiction. And then there was another course I took that had slightly uh, kind of larger chronological parameters called consciousness from Austin to Wolf. So Austin Mm. being a little bit before, you know, modernism. But in those two classes, I really became, I was moved by and also endlessly fascinated by modernism's attempt to render subjectivity, right? What it feels like to be a self in the world, what Mm -hmm. it feels like to be a mind in the world. Famous kind of strategies like stream of consciousness in these, in novels like Joyce or Faulkner or Wolf. Yeah. 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 And, and so in particular as an undergrad, I, I loved Joyce. I loved Wolf. I loved Proust. I loved Faulkner. For whatever reason, I didn't take as many courses or do as much reading in modernist poetry as an undergrad. I I took a lot of wonderful poetry classes and was very interested in poetry. 
my my real love as an undergrad in in poetic terms was Keats. Um, mm. And but anyway, so then I when I got to grad school, I took a couple of really wonderful classes. I knew I wanted to be a modernist because of that exposure as an undergraduate. I took a, a couple of wonderful classes in modernist poetry and 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 I had I had read and really admired T.S. Eliot and, and Wallace Stevens in particular, mm-hmm. but I fell newly or I guess not newly um, more deeply in love with them as a mm-hmm. graduate student and so decided to to write my dissertation on them. That's so interesting to hear. <laughs> I love asking people how they got obsessed with the things they got obsessed with because um, the little snippets of people's life in relation to literature is always so compelling to me. But I had the opposite experience in my undergraduate mm-hmm. <laughs> time where I took a class on on those modernist prose writers and I hated yeah. them. Like oh, I just wow. I I just could not handle it. And yeah. then actually modern modernist poetry I really liked. And then I mm-hmm. sort of begrudgingly came to admire them, although uh to admire those prose writers. Although I still must admit I just Joyce is like the death of me. I will not read him. I just can't. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, for, for, I don't know what this reveals about my, about how I've changed since I was an undergrad. I, I haven't seriously read. Well, that's, that's not quite true. I guess what I would say is as an undergrad, I love, I really, really love Joyce. I wrote my senior essay on Joyce and Flaubert and I haven't, I haven't read a ton of joy since then. I mean, mm. I read him for my grad, you know, the graduate work I had to do. And I taught, I've taught some stories from Dubliners, but the, the, the writer of modernist fiction who I return to again and again and again, I'm actually teaching a course on her this semester again is Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wolf is the, is a long and abiding love of mine, but I'd say, my love has, yeah, slightly shifted from modernist prose to modernist poetry with Wolf still accompanying me uh, all the way. And I mean, she's as much a poet as she is a, a She is, truly. Me. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, so who is your favorite modernist poet then at this stage? It's it's got to be Elliot. It's got to be Elliot. Um, okay, we'll put yeah. a little pin there and talk about yeah. him uh, in a few minutes. Um yeah. And dive into Elliot because he's also my favorite. Um, But uh, so, okay, modernism is often associated with fragmentation, intentionally obscure meaning, um, difficulty, disillusionment, um, and especially interwar stuff written after the just total catastrophe and horror of the Great War. Yeah. And sometimes this fragmentation or disillusionment is seen as this like anti-theological project that went alongside the widespread rejection of religion or a cynical sense that religion and social structures were useless after the horrors that um, these young men in the trenches were witness to. Um, But you uh, have written this really interesting book called Poetry and Theology in the Modernist Period, where you write that this fragmentation in modernist poetry could be itself a theological project and that, um, that poets like Eliot and Auden were actually responding in their poetry to contemporary theology, not just like historical theology and mysticism, but not just a remnant of Christianity left in society, but really alongside theological projects. Could you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, so, so part of the argument is that there was a real and sustained conversation between modernist poets and contemporary theologians, which mm-hmm. is to say that poets like T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, and David Jones were actually reading contemporary theology and responding to it in their work. And the proof of that is 
certainly in in the poems. So um, you know, when Auden is writing his his great Christmas poem for the time being, he is explicitly engaging with newly translated into English Kierkegaard. He's explicitly engaging with Reinhold Niebuhr, who he also reviewed for the New Republic and the Nation. Um, so when you know when David Jones is writing his great uh the anathemata he is again specifically alluding to jacques maritain and and other neotomists so part part of the record of that conversation is in the poetry but also part of the record is in actual wrestling with contemporary theology in the prose that these poets were were writing so i mentioned that that auden who was a great essayist and reviewer, in addition to being a great poet, was writing on Kierkegaard and Niebuhr and Karl Barth for, you know, the nation of the New Republic. It's kind of wild to think that in in the New Republic, we had one of our great poets writing on, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr. I guess we have a rough equivalent of that with like Marilyn Robinson writing on theology for the New York Review of Books. But so Auden is doing that. Jones is writing a series of really wonderful essays. We'd have to describe them as something like essays of theological aesthetics that he mm-hmm. publishes in, in a great book called Epoch and Artist. But really the central the central forum in which we can see this conversation besides the poetry taking place is in T.S. Eliot's little magazine, The Criterion. Mm-hmm. So Eliot is the editor of this little magazine that publishes modernist poetry, prose, reviews from 1922. The first issue of the Criterion famously has The Wasteland, right? It publishes The Wasteland in its first issue, and it runs all the way up through 1939. And increasingly over the years, so Elliot spent a lot of time editing, soliciting reviews and editing uh, reviews and essays from contributors, but increasingly over the run of that magazine from 1922 to 1939, the criterion was um, a, a book review, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the review section kind of expanded more and more and more the further along in its run it went. And Eliot was continually soliciting and editing pieces on contemporary theology. So Karl Barth was reviewed again and again and again in the criterion. Maritain was a contributor to the criterion. So a lot of these, what we would describe as like um, modernist magazines, weren't only publishing modernist poetry. They were actually publishing explicit engagements with contemporary theology. So we can see this conversation taking place between these disciplines, poetry and theology, both within the poetry and within the modernist magazines that formed kind of periodical networks throughout the period. I found that so interesting. I had no idea. Um, I mean, I knew that obviously the Criterion was engaging with cultural issues of its day. Yeah. But um, when I was reading that chapter, I I was like, oh, that's due to just people staying in their own fields. I think I just yeah. never thought of Elliot engaging with, for instance, Karl Barth, who's totally a... <laughs> A heavyweight in the in theology, yeah. um, or I mean, I knew that he was engaging with historical writers like Julian of Norwich and engaging with her in a theological way. But yeah. um, I I was surprised, and then I thought I shouldn't have been surprised because clearly he was a thinker interested in these questions. But yeah. um, I think it's easy to forget these things and and forget the kind of wealth of theologians and poets working at that time, wrestling with giant issues and actually dialoguing with one another, or at least thinking alongside one another very intentionally. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. And, and to go back to, I think the, uh, the initial way you framed the question was talking about modernism and and fragmentation and how fragmentation is often understood as almost an anti theology or something like Mm -hmm. that. Yes. I I know I, I don't need to, to say this to you as a, as a medievalist, and I probably don't need to say this to uh, the listeners if they're interested in religion and theological writing and thinking generally, but of course, fragmentation has a long history in deep theological thinking, right? I mean, that's apophaticism, right? Absolutely. No, um, it's actually a very sloppy way of understanding, um, uh, like uh, 
fragmentation in general. Well, it's yeah. broken, therefore it must not be um, theological. But it's like, well, isn't sin basically a con- yeah. <laughs> the condition and, of brokenness? And I, mean, <laughs> and I mean, is the is there a more in in certain ways a more traditional or orthodox theological position than God by God's very nature exceeds? human language yes. and the only way we can gesture towards God is by breaking language. Right. I mean, yes. that, that's, that's, you know, that's the cloud of unknowing that, 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 that's, you know, everything in the theological tradition. So, so there, there's a way in, and this is part of the argument I make in looking at Eliot's poetry. There's a way, I think a convincing way in which the fragmentation, the fracturing, the difficulty of modernist poetry is not a way of, um, kind of evacuating the world of God's presence or wrestling with a world that has been evacuated of God's presence. But it's simply to think the, to think and write theologically, right? Yes. In, in, a, in a very kind of traditional apophatic manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. And I, I feel like if you sit with Eliot for a long time in particular, that starts to become really clear. Is this... Yeah reaching out in the dark that is uh sometimes illuminated right as yeah. as he writes about so often in his four yeah. quartets but yeah um how language will sometimes catch at a piece of something yeah. that it can hold on to for a moment but inevitably you have to let go of it um yeah. so let's talk about t.s Eliot then let's yeah. let's dive into t.s Eliot, which um for those who uh who are sort of vaguely recalling back to um, their undergraduate years, if they were fortunate enough to read him then. Um, Could you give us a little teeny short bio of who Eliot was and how he moved from writing uh, poems like The Wasteland, which focused on the deterioration of society and the meaningless suffering of contemporary life into writing some of the most famous and most accomplished Christian poetry of the 20th century, like the four quartets. Sure. So Eliot was born in St. Louis, Missouri, although he came from a very eminent New England family. And he was was raised in St. Louis in a Unitarian family. A lot of his religious history, I think, and he himself thought, could be understood in part as a a rebellious response to the Unitarianism yeah. of his family, in which he mm-hmm. thought he thought that his fa- his family's religious tradition, you know, de-emphasized doctrine, um, emphasized religious feeling as opposed to religious thinking, and so when he eventually converted to uh, Anglo-Catholicism in the late 1920s, he would convert to uh, a church, right, that he understood as in many ways directly opposed to Unitarianism mm-hmm. and emphasized original sin and emphasized fallenness and emphasized mm-hmm. the importance of ritual and doctrine. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he's raised he's raised in St. Louis. He goes to Harvard, as all good Eliots did, as an undergrad. <laughs> and when he's at Harvard, he discovers the French poet Jules Laforgue, who writes this kind of ironic, uh, sordid, deeply modernist feeling poetry. And that kind of is the, through Laforgue, Eliot discovers his own poetic voice, right? Mm. Through Laforgue's poetry of and about the city, of and about um, the I- ironizing, dehumanizing effects of modernity, Eliot finds his own voice. And that, and that will be a, a regular idea for Eliot, that the poet discovers his or her voice in part through other voices. Right? Mm-hmm. Tradition was always really, really important to Eliot, that mm-hmm. great poets emerge from, are kind of activated by tradition. So when he's he's an undergrad at Harvard, he starts writing this kind of Laforgue inspired poetry. He ends up going to graduate school. He's studying at Harvard. He's studying to be a philosopher. And he ends up, you know, going to London, going to Europe. And at, at a certain point, 
he kind of decides he doesn't want to follow the more uh, kind of traditional Eliotic line and become an academic, become a philosopher. He's going to be a poet. He stays in in Europe and he lives, you know, in London, right, in England for the rest of his life. And he becomes the great poet he was in in London. And in the 19 teens and then the early 1920s, he's writing poetry like the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, mm-hmm. uh, poetry like Gerontian, poetry like uh, The Wasteland. And these poems are really central to the history of modernism. They are deeply, deeply, deeply formally experimental. They kind of fracture harmony. They they do everything that Stephen said the modernist poet has to do, construct a new stage, you know, wrestle with the language and experiences of modernity. Um but also, I think so. You, you, I think the the way you you frame the question was how does he move from being the poet of the wasteland, which is oftentimes read as a poem about the emptiness of existence, mm-hmm, right, the hollowness mm-hmm. of existence, to uh, the poet of four quartets, which is I would say probably the great religious poem of the twentieth century yes. that that sees not existence as hollow, not existence as empty, but sees existence as suffused with meaning and beauty. Yes, a sacramental sort of existence. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess what I would say is, um, first of all, so how does he get from the wasteland to to four quartets? Well, you know, he changes and grows as a poet, as as all great artists do. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, the the style and form of four quartets is is very different from the wasteland. It's, Mm -hmm. It's more kind of essayistic and contemplative as opposed to the expressionist um, imagism of the wasteland. So part of it is just, a, 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 if not an evolution, a development of style and poetics that, that many great poets have. Um, part of it is, you know, Eliot from a very early age, including when he was at Harvard as an undergrad was deeply interested in mysticism. Yes. Right? He, he read and he read Julian, you know, when he was an undergrad, mm-hmm. was interested in Julian when he was an undergrad. And he had this desire for access to a, a world beyond this one. Right. Yes. Um, and, you know, when he converted and, and began editing the criterion and began working on Ash Wednesday and began working on four quartets, it was, it's not, I, I, I don't know that I'd describe it as a complete break from the poet of the wasteland. It's just, no. he, he now had faith that there was such a realm beyond yes. in sustaining this world. Right? Yeah. Um, and so I, th- I think that in, in certain ways, the wasteland is a, a, a poem about the deep and wounded desire for something beyond this world. Mm-hmm. And four quartets is a poem that proclaims the existence of such a world. Yes. Yes. I think of them both as being um, like teleological poems, but Mm. one is, you know, the wastelands teleology is towards something that is empty, right? Where you hope and you hope and you hope, but it ends up, it's not there. Yeah. And four quartets has, has a teleology, an end, that it knows and that it's, mm-hmm. it has recognized or they yeah. have the, that Elliot has recognized and continues to seek yeah. and only catches it in glimpses, but yeah. hope, faith, and love are there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in the, the only slight pushback I'd give is I think that there, I mean, the wasteland ends Shanti, 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 right. It, which yes, that's true. In his, in his footnotes, right. He, he, the footnotes, which are kind of famously difficult to to read, the level of sincerity or irony that Eliot was, sure. was providing. But he's, he's always messing around with irony. He's always messing around, <laughs> absolutely. And and you know, there's a funny history with the the footnotes to the wasteland, which is he wrote the footnotes initially for a very simple reason, which was not to help readers understand the poem, but he wanted to publish the wasteland as a book. And for it to be book length, he needed more pages. <laughs> so he wrote notes, right? I but didn't anyways, know that. So, yeah. So, funny. so there's a funny, there's a funny history of, in th- that the footnotes are a part of. But when he has a footnote for Shanti, Shanti, Shanti at the end of the wasteland, he he says that roughly translates as the peace that passeth understanding. 
right? Yeah. There is a way in which that poem hopes for and finds very, very flickering glimpses of an order or a harmony or a beauty or a peace beyond the fragmentation. Yes. And and actually in four quartets, right? Um, the first of the four quartets, Bernd Norton ends, you know, a great poem as all the, uh, the, all the quartets are of kind of epiphanic experience moments in which the pattern of existence is seen in which that sustaining, loving, grace-filled world beyond this one is glimpsed. Even that poem ends ridiculous, the waste, sad time stretching before and after, right? Yes. So what I would say is like the wasteland does have moments of hope and maybe even faith in something beyond the hollowness of this existence. And for quartets, that great grace-filled sequence also has many passages in which the world seems precisely empty and hollow, right? Yes, yes. I totally um, agree. I think what I would say, amending myself, is that I think that the wasteland wants to hope, yes. but doesn't necessarily know what to hope for. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. And so that's what I mean by the sort of emptiness where you go, I'm, I hope, but the hope itself is so painful, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm rejecting the total re- rejection of all meaning because I wrote yeah. poetry about it, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. seeks meaning yeah. um, to some extent, um, yeah. even if it's meaning about meaninglessness or whatever. Um, but that then in the four quartets, the, the difference is that for me, I think the waste sad time, if you're reading Julian, there in the end will be no such thing as the waste sad time and so the ending of little getting with the ingathering of the rose yeah and the flame um is is what i'm thinking of so no right and and so i i think i uh, uh, i agree with your general i first of all i totally i completely agree with your last account of the wasteland i think that's a beautiful way of describing the poem wanting to hope right painfully wanting to hope for something yes excruciating hope (laughs) yeah 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 what what i what i think what i think is important is to understand or at least to wrestle with the fact that there is absolutely an important shift in Eliot's biography right he converted he became a communicant right he yes there's an important biographical change from the wasteland to four quartets um but i think too often critics and readers have thought of the waste there being an absolute rupture right yes Between the and four which is wrong yes right and i think there is a, con- a, a a complicated continuity but a continuity nonetheless between them and that oftentimes leads to readers you know having to either be team wasteland or team four quartets For right sure. yes. and 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 I don't know. I, I, I want to, and, and do deeply admire both of them and, and think that um, they're both essential to Eliot's achievement and that there are deep poetic, but also theological connections between the two of them. Oh, absolutely. And I, I appreciated that about your book pointing out that while Eliot was writing things like the wasteland, it wasn't this theological, investment and interest wasn't something that developed in the late 1930s and early 1940s as he was writing the four quartets. It's something that um, his understanding evolved of it and how he related to it evolved, but the interest and the passion was always there and the curiosity. Um, And he was engaging in the many different um, forms of his poetry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, (laughs) I, I don't know how you were taught it in undergrad when you first met T.S. Eliot, but when I first met T.S. Eliot, I was only taught Wasteland T.S. Eliot. I was not taught Four Quartets T.S. Eliot. And so I think, um, it has made for interesting, like interesting, um, engagement with Eliot, like uh, as my studies progressed, as I read more and more. But yeah. um, there's yeah, definitely no, I, that temptation. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I came to four quartets 
entirely on my own, right? I, Same. I, didn't, I didn't read it in, in class. And, you know, I mentioned before when I was an undergrad, my, my great poetic love was for Keats. And yes. partly that's because I had an incredible professor, an incredible critic and, and scholar, Helen Venler, who taught a class on, on Keats that I, that I took. And, you know, Helen, Helen Venler has a, a wonderful book that I actually use when I teach intro to, to lyric poetry called um, poems. I think it's called poems, poets, poetry, something like that. And she has a great reading of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And she's, she, had, she deeply, deeply admires the early Eliot of love song of J. Alfred Prufrock preludes the wasteland. And she despises the Eliot of four quartets. Right? <laughs> so it's it's yes. not an accident. It's not an accident. And, and again, there are many readers who are like that. There are many readers who take the opposite bent. Yes. Like, oh, yes. Four quartets is a, a poem. No, I hate I the wasteland. I hate Love. the wasteland. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, no, I so don't. Yeah, I think, I'm, yeah, but people yeah, have yeah, that reaction. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I, no, I had the same experience. I did not, I, I, you know, read proof rock. I'm, sh I'm sure I read it in high school um, because it's, you know, a, a core, a, a poem that's oftentimes taught in, you know, senior English because mm -hmm. it's like a dramatic monologue. And yes, I certainly read that. In, and in Elliot wrote it right? when he wasn't that much older than a high yeah, schooler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a, he's a, basically he's a college student trying on a, a middle-aged man's, <laughs> you know, worldview. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, four quartets, I came to entirely on my own. How um, did you come to it? You just, do you remember your first reading of it? So I think the, I think the first time I read it was as an undergrad, not in class. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, I bought the, the collected poems of T.S. Eliot. And one of the good things about Eliot, one of the good things about another one of my favorite poets, Elizabeth Bishop is their collected poems are relatively slim. Mm. Right? Major strength. Odd. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's not odd. And so no. it's not a 600 page collected poems. <laughs> so I, I bought his collected poems and, and I, you know, it's whatever it is, 180 pages. And, and I decided to read the whole thing. And so I read four quartets and I thought to myself, despite what I was just saying, man, this sounds like a really different kind of poet, right? This is very mm -hmm. different from the Elliot that I've read before. And, uh, I, I loved moments in four quartets. I didn't spend a ton of time with it until I got to grad school, mm -hmm. uh, and really got interested in, in particular, again, the relationship between kind of intellectual theological history and poetic history in the modernist period. And that's when I spent lots and lots and lots of time with it. Mm hmm yeah, I think I bought it at a, a used bookstore when I had just graduated uh -huh. from college for like $3. And it was yeah. the greatest $3 that I've ever yeah. spent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so which uh, which quartet is your favorite? Or do you have like a favorite passage that we could think about together? So I I promise I'm not choosing this just to uh, to pander to you. But I would say it is little getting. <laughs> And it's the end of Little Getting. Right? Yes, in naturally. Which, <laughs> in which um, kind of Julian um, comes full-throatedly into the poem. And maybe, so maybe what I, what I can do is I, I could just read the, the end of Little Getting. If, Please. If that, yes. That would be great. But so before I, before I say that, I had mentioned before the importance of tradition to Eliot mm -hmm. and of the poet finding his or her voice through the voice of other poets. And that, that in part I'm, I'm getting from this great essay that Eliot wrote around the time of the wasteland uh, tradition in the individual talent where mm -hmm. Eliot has this again, despite the fact that this is published and in, in written, you know, a number of years before his conversion, a deeply kind of Catholic understanding of mm -hmm. the sustaining, invigorating nature of tradition. Mm -hmm. Eliot says tradition is a dynamic thing. It's ever changing. You know, when a new poem is a new powerful poem is written, it changes all of tradition. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but he also, again, says, if we look for the moment of greatest strength in any modern poet, 
it will be when past poets speak most powerfully in his or her voice. Mm. And, and that's something that Eliot believed in the wasteland. And you can certainly see that in, in all of the wasteland and all of its, you know, voicings and borrowings and yes. quotations of other poets. But, and again, this is another point of continuity between four quartets and the wasteland four quartets is arguably just as elusive a poem. As oh yes, absolutely. Is. Yes. And one of another section from little getting that I won't read out loud that I really love is the encounter that the speaker has with the compound ghost. He's out walking and he, he has a conversation with this ghost that is really, it's called the, the compound ghost. And, and, and he's a compound of many of Eliot's predecessors, mm-hmm. you know, Yeats and Browning and Dante and others. And that, that scene in Little Gidding in which the, the speaker who's kind of out walking in war-torn England has a conversation with Dante and Browning and Yeats is, um, really characteristic again of poetry as conversation with tradition, yes. which is constitutive of Eliot from beginning to end, and is certainly important to Eliot in this last section that uh, that I'm going to read out loud, in which we can we can hear Julian um, most specifically, but we can also hear uh, Tennyson, and we can also hear Dante in particular um, in the end. So this is the the very end of uh, Little Getting, the fifth section. With the drawing of this love in the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, in the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, now always a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well when the tongues of flame are infolded into the crowned knot of fire in the fire in the rose are one it's amazing and it's such a, yeah, you, you, you kind of just want to read it and then sit with it, right? Sit in silence because it's so powerful and so, so lovely. It is, it is. And I, even, I have my copy of Little Getting out in front of me and it's one of those things where you're flipping through and you're like, oh yeah. And I really like that part. Oh, and I really like that part too. Yeah. Um, it's such an amazing poem. I have a question for you yeah. about that. I've always wondered what what do you think he means by the fire and the rose? Mm. I think I think what he means there, and I think that, that so I mentioned how elusive this whole mm-hmm. last section, this whole poem is, but I think that the fire and the rose are definitely pointing to Dante who yes. was the uh, the abiding love of Eliot's life Absolutely. As, as a poet and the rose is the celestial rose of paradise yes. right yeah so for uh, for readers who have not brushed up on their dante or for listeners who haven't brushed up on their dante recently at the end of um of uh, paradiso there's like the design of the saints around God is the shape of a, of a rose of a celestial rose. Yeah. Yeah. So eternity, right. Is imagined as this figure of complete perfection and beauty, Mm -hmm. a celestial rose and the fire. I, I think in, in this last line is, is not, pointing to the fire of the inferno the the fire of hell but the, no. the purgatorial fire mm. right mm-hmm. um and i think that you know the the 
the poem ends by using Julian to think about the beatific vision, right? The moment in which the ridiculous way sad time is kind of gathered up and revealed to be full of meaning in, in, in beauty and grace. Um, and that last line is imaging that the gathering up of, uh, the suffering, the pain, the purgation of earthly existence into the beatific vision that is still to come. Right. So it's, it's a way, it's, I think it's a way of braiding together Julian and Dante. Mm -hmm. It's a way of using the, so four quartets, there are lots of ways of understanding the quartets in relation to one another. Each quartet has its own kind of element, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like the water quartet, there's the air quartet. And this is, you know, using one of the elements, the fire, right? And gathering it up into the final vision, the final poetic and theological vision, which is something beyond the elements of this world, right? Which mm -hmm. is that celestial divine rose. So I think, I think it's a way, it's a way of Eliot, kind of hearkening back to a number of his important predecessors. And it's a way of him pointing towards the kind of uh, gathering in that this poem accomplishes and that he believes eternity will accomplish. Yeah, that's really helpful. I always, um, I keep Dante in mind as I read this, um, but sometimes uh the language of fire becomes a, a difficult one for me and I have mm. to sit with it for a long time. And mm -hmm. so that's a helpful way of thinking about Purgatorio and Paradiso meeting at, at yeah. the consummation of time. Um, so something I love that you've um, brought up in a way, Elliot, when Elliot's writing about Dante and he gives an address on Dante and he writes that um, and speaks that the poet should be the servant of his language rather than the master of it, um, which I think is uh, a really interesting expression for thinking about um, poetry and language in general. And also it is, I was just reading a the irrational season by Madeline Langle. And she mm -hmm. talks a lot about that idea as well mm -hmm. in her um, nonfiction. But mm -hmm. uh, do you think that that's also related to the way that he thinks about tradition and these um, writers and poets that he's drawing on as well? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I do. I think that so I mentioned that one way of understanding Eliot's religious biography is as a long argument with his family's Unitarianism, right? <laughs> kind of from beginning to end. Um, and another way of understanding Eliot's, I don't know, philosophical biography, but also his poetic biography is that it's a long standing argument with romanticism, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, he, and he has, I mean, all kinds of different things that sometimes aren't very fair to the romantics. I mentioned before how much I love Keats, right? I, I love <laughs> Shelley. I, I love the Absolutely. Um, but at least in Eliot's conception of romanticism, right? Uh, what romanticism privileges and praises is self-expression. Yes. The individual right? experience. Yeah. And, you know, Eliot famously declared himself, not a romantic, not a romanticist, but a classicist in literature, right? And and he thought that the that his own poetry and the poetry in fiction of his peers, and in particular, he was thinking of T. E. Hume and, and Pound and others, that modernist poetry uh, was classicist in nature, right? Which is not about um, using language to full-throatedly and ecstatically express the self, right, in its feelings and its emotions, but humbling itself before mm -hmm. form, and of humbling itself before language, humbling itself before the poem. In fact, in tradition, the individual talent, he actually talks about, you know, poetry not as being a letting loose of emotion, um, but as a, an extinction, a, a self-extinction, right? A mm -hmm. kind of extinction of the personality. Um, and 
from beginning to end, Eliot is interested in, in, in deeply believes in poetry, not so much as a tool of self-expression that uses language as a discipline, a disciplining of the self, a disciplining mm-hmm. of the emotion that involves a humbling before the ultimate mystery, right? Which sometimes is language, sometimes is God. Um, and, and those two are, are deeply related, obviously, God as as logos. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, that for for Eliot in that Dante address and, and elsewhere, language isn't something that we are in command of, yes. we are masters of. It's something, again, in part due to the relationship between language and signs and God, it's something that we um should humble must humble ourselves before yes yeah. i i um that's something that i've always responded to in elliot um instinctively before i i knew really what he was doing but that yeah. idea of um of humility before language and yeah. before um the great writers thinkers poets who have come before you and who you're yeah. you are um you're not like a worm before them. Like, it's not like that kind of yeah. <laughs> humiliating tradition, but yeah. that idea that um, you are participating in something that is necessarily bigger than you. Yeah. And, um, and so as you enter into it, you have, you, you are not, um, what is the word I'm looking for? I mean, really, it is just humility that you're aware that you are a small part of of this yeah. ongoing piece. And I think that's present even in that the earlier poetry yeah. wasteland um, in a different way. But that same idea of entering into the, a larger conversation yeah. and um, even when that is frightening, too. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of uh, his lines in East Coker that I, I have them taped above my desk because uh-huh. I think they're such a great description for writing and projects in general. But the when he's talking about um, writing and composing, um, where he's saying um, that you're following people that you can't hope to emulate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And... There's only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again. And now under conditions that seem unpropitious, but perhaps neither gain or loss for us, there's only the trying. The rest is not our business. Mm. Um, And I love those lines because I think they are, there's some irony there, but they also express that, um, that, service to language yeah yeah Yeah, no i i feel like i should put those lines over my my desk as well i feel like all writers should put those lines yes that's how i feel like oh yeah i'm just trying the rest is not my business i'm trying um and i i don't hope to emulate those who come before but there they are so um and and what you said before i think you you were I think you were struggling to figure out what the right verb would be. And and I think you, one of the verbs you landed on was participate. And I think that's exactly right. Um, That, you know, and the other, the other thing you said was you become a small part of that, Mm -hmm. which came before you. And in both of the elements of that phrase, small and part are important, right? Yes, absolutely. There is a kind of humility in recognizing your own, not your own, worminess right but your own smallness your own insufficiency in the face of that which came before you or that which exceeds you yes in tension maybe tension isn't the right word um alongside the absolute belief that you are a part of what came before you. yes absolutely yeah yeah i think um that is uh, something I really love is that there's no, it's not like a false humility, like a diminishment of your own involvement in, in this, um, in the, the writing of beautiful things, but, uh, but that you're definitely aware. I'm a small part. I'm only a small part. Um, And then great poetry comes out of it in this case. Yeah. So 
Um, I'm going to, we have to kind of wrap things up, but um, very important question. I talk to a lot of people who are intimidated by poetry in particular. They love fiction, but poetry is frightening, um, especially yeah. someone like Eliot or modernist poetry in general. Um, for folks who are interested in our conversation and what you're saying about um modernist poets, where would you recommend they begin? Um, what poems or editions would be a good starting place to enter into the richness of modernist poetry? Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the first thing I would say about, and I say this to, I regularly teach a class called modern poetry that is, you know, on, on modernism. And I think the first thing to say to anyone who is struggling with or getting frustrated by the difficulty of poetry generally, but modernist poetry specifically, is um, that's not because you're a bad reader, right? Amen. It's not, <laughs> yeah, it's not because you don't have the the entire command of the English canon at your fingertips. It's because poetry generally and modernist poetry specifically is it's it's seeking after a density of meaning that is by its very nature difficult yes right if you don't find it difficult then you're not reading it well yes right and totally and you can spend and and i have spent and, and will spend years and years and years reading the wasteland reading four quartets and never feel sufficient to the poem right and actually to go back to what elliot was saying First of all, I think that kind of humbling before the poem is a good thing. Yes. It's intellectually yes. a good thing. Um, it applies to the reader as well as the poet. You absolutely. should feel your smallness and your yeah. limitation as you enter into reading these great works. Yeah. And, and that should be something, you know, feeling smallness or insufficiency can be unpleasant, but it doesn't have to be unpleasant. Yes. And it can be the first step in a deeper engagement with that, which exceeds you, right. That, which, yes. that, which precedes you. But my, my general suggestion when students are, or just general readers are reading the wasteland for the first time or, or any difficult modernist poem, which is to say pretty much any modern poem, <laughs> Pick one out of the um, hat. Yes. Yeah. Is to, to not, well, uh, I'm going to go back to, to Keats. Somehow Keats has ended up coming up a lot in this conversation, but Keats has a great phrase from one of his letters, negative capability, where he mm -hmm. talks about, he talks about Shakespeare being the genius of negative capability, which mm -hmm. is the ability to dwell in uncertainties and mysteries and doubts without grasping after certainty. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, First of all, you know, just to 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 be a reader of modernism is of poetry generally, but modernism specifically is requires a a comfort with uncertainty and mystery and doubt and insufficiency. Mm. Um, but the the first suggestion I have beyond just don't feel bad if you think it's difficult. It's difficult. You you think it's difficult because it is difficult, and there's there's a, a gift in being in feeling humbled before that, which exceeds you is to just listen to the poem, right? Just read it out loud. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the wasteland, there are innumerable, wonderful recordings of the wasteland, including recording, uh, recording by Elliot himself. Mm -hmm. Just listen to it and approach it first, not as a, a code that needs to be cracked, but as a piece of music, because the wasteland though cacophonous in many moments is an exquisite piece of music mm -hmm. right and just not looking up references not worrying about yes. semantic meaning but thinking about experiencing sonic meaning musical meaning is a great first step to a deeper engagement with the poem Eliot had this uh great notion he called the auditory imagination he said that all po po poets have the auditory imagination and he says um, basically that poets in the auditory imagination reaches towards the world beyond language and brings back something beyond language, right? So, so that rhythm and music offer up a kind of meaning that can never precisely, rationally, logically be articulated mm -hmm. and allowing yourself to feel the 
in a somewhat paradoxical fashion, allowing yourself to feel the meaning and beauty and pleasure that is beyond language yet is rendered in language in, in the poem is a great first step. Just oh, listen, yeah. just soak in the language. I think that was 80% of my 90% of my first reading of the four quartets was, I don't yeah. really understand what's happening, but the sound of it is so amazing. Yep. Yep, the sound, the the kind of feel in your ear. The is, word, the like just wordiness yeah. words. I enjoyed all yeah. of that so much. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if yeah, if any listeners are want to give Elliot a chance but are, are worried that he's too difficult, first of all, yes, he is difficult. That's not a failing on your part. That's a that's that's a, a feature, right? Of the poem. <laughs> right. Not a flaw, um, but a feature. Yeah. And, and also just allow, just give yourself over to the pleasure in music of the language and don't worry at least initially about struggling after reference or illusion or meaning. And then um, finally, uh, for folks interested in hearing more about what you're up to, um, where can people find you online? Um, so I am uh, on Twitter uh, at Tony, uh, Domestico. And, uh, I have a, I, you know, I have a website. You can find my writings at anthonydomestico.com. I am a, I don't know what my technical title is, I guess maybe a staff writer, literary editor, something like that at Commonweal. So I write a lot for Commonweal. Um, but I write for, for other magazines and publications like the baffler and, and other places. So if you, if you follow me on Twitter or, uh, go to my website, you can find everything I've done there. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Domestico, for coming on and having this conversation. It's always a joy to me to get to talk about Eliot and poetry. So thank you. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Old Books with Grace. If you're interested in finding out more of what I'm up to, you can always follow me on Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD. I deeply appreciate any ratings and reviews that you leave on this podcast on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people to find it, and it helps me out too. Thanks again. <laughs>